Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from a Prova Education Live event titled Managing Nutritional Care of the Preemie Graduate, a Pediatrician's Perspective. Here's Dr. Ayla Boys, Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine. I want to thank Prova for asking me to speak about one of my favorite topics, and that is the discharge uh, preemie, and particularly the nutrition of the preemie. And I am a general pediatrician, so in fact this is uh, my perspective of a general pediatrician. My objective is really just to share with you my experience in catching, uh, if you will, these very complex patients and also their mothers and fathers as they have had a night or two under their belts. Uh, with the first visit and then the subsequent visits over the next few weeks. In trying to do that, uh, I'm briefly going to describe uh, the nutritional status of the preemie graduates at discharge, um, explain the developmental and growth outcomes related to the nutritional status, basically a very quick uh, points that I've taken from the literature that I need to keep in mind as I'm moving forward in caring for these infants. Uh, we're going to talk about the advantages of breast milk for the preemies and nutrients that might need to be supplemented uh, when uh, feeding uh, the, the baby that's getting predominantly breast milk. Um, describe which preemies are candidates for fortification. Uh, describe methods for monitoring growth and nutrition after discharge and list strategies for assisting mothers to maintain um, their breast milk supply and also transition their babies to breastfeeding. Again, to go over the uh, growth and nutrition, a few of the high points, uh, talk about their nutritional status at discharge, what is the best nutrition, monitoring and supporting the infant and mother, and problem solving. Okay, so briefly, uh, there's a, a quite a bit of literature out there uh, but uh, many of these babies do not, are not discharged uh, at the same growth parameters that, at which they were born. And one term that is often used uh, that I think is very descriptive is extrauterine growth retardation, uh, which is generally used to describe those infants at discharge who are at or less than the 10th percentile for what would be expected for that equivalent postmenstrual or gestational age. I also sometimes think of it as those infants that may be the 15th or 20th percentile but were at birth at the 50th or 60th percentile. To me, those babies are still, still have experienced extrauterine growth retardation. Some but not all of these babies have catch-up growth. And we do know from past history that uh, oftentimes at age seven or even in their ten teens and even as adults, they're often smaller and do not uh, have the catch-up growth that they should have. This came out of Japan a few years ago where they looked at a small cohort of 416 infants and they plotted uh, their, uh, they calculated uh, whether they had extrauterine growth retardation, that is if they were at the 10th percentile or below when they reached term status, and then plotted that against their gestational age at birth. And this has been shown by others as well, that those infants who are very small, um, 26 weeks or less at birth, uh, oftentimes, almost 100% in this group have extrauterine growth retardation in their weight and length growth parameters. 
but even those that are a little bit older, almost as many as 50% still have extrauterine growth retardation at term. So I think that's a surprising uh, statistic, frankly. The head circumference is relatively spared. Sometimes the head uh, does not grow, but in general, uh, the body tends to conserve uh, the head circumference and brain growth. A few other facts that I think are important to keep in mind for the uh, general pediatrician is that poor growth, especially if the head circumference doesn't grow, uh, they're at greater risk for impaired neurodevelopmental outcomes. So those babies whose head circumference is lagging may well not do as well later on uh, in cognitive measures. Uh, and even though neonatal care has improved dramatically over the last 25 years that I've been in practice, I just love taking care of these babies and see how well they do, uh, most of these babies, and we've said it several times, but I'm going to say it again, at discharge have not achieved their uh, growth parameters that they were at birth. So we need to keep that in mind as we start to care for these babies uh, as they come out of the unit. And again, we've said several times, we need to keep in mind that the nutritional deficits are not only in energy, but protein, minerals, calcium, phosphate, iron and zinc, and vitamins D and E. So what is the best nutrition post-discharge? Breast milk, we know, has great important advantages in the neonatal intensive care unit. I think the evidence is most strong in the prevention of neck, also other infections. Uh, but what really was uh, is striking to me is some of the work uh, by Dr. Vohr that showed that uh, the more breast milk infants received, the premature infants received, the better they did on neurodevelopmental outcomes at 18 months, and then she followed those infants out to 30 months, and they still did better. So certainly, I think that is very impressive data and an impetus for me to help these moms maintain their breast milk supply uh, and for those infants to receive breast milk after discharge. Uh, of course, we know even all babies, uh, term babies, uh, have fewer infections with breast milk and less uh, obesity. Hopefully other chronic diseases are lessened. There's increasing evidence to that effect. Uh, less inflammatory bowel disease, less diabetes, and the list goes on. So I feel that the preterm infant deserves that same advantage that the term infant uh, is hopefully receiving. However, breast milk alone may not have adequate calories, minerals, protein, and vitamins to promote optimal growth and development. And in fact, I have an illustrative case from our practice several years ago. Uh, this was an infant that came out of the unit. Uh, he was a 26-weeker, one-kilo kid, so he was a pretty good-sized baby, but had a very stormy course in our neonatal intensive care unit. He had RDS, sepsis, IVH, retinopathy of prematurity. However, things looked pretty good. His alkaline phosphatase at discharge was in the 300s, which is what we like to see. And it was very interesting, this was a baby who liked to breastfeed. Uh, I was not his primary care physician, but because I'm the breastfeeding biggest proponent in our office, the nurses and everyone would come to tell, tell me that this little baby was always on mom's breast. As opposed to many of our babies who don't really take to the breast very well, this baby really did like to breastfeed. He seemed to be growing fine, as you can see from our curves. On this curve, I plot the actual A, uh, the actual growth uh, parameters in the chronologic age as well as then adjust, and that's what the two lines are, are the adjusted and the chronological uh, actual uh, growth parameters. And he seemed to be growing just fine. However, he had an incidental bump on the head 
which sent him to the emergency room and an x ray was obtained when he was about six months of age and he had rickets and lo and behold this was before we were routinely doing blood tests his alkaline phosphatase had tripled it was six o nine his calcium was nine point seven and he had a borderline phosphorus we then questioned the mother and found that she was no longer giving the fortified supplements had been that had been instructed she had been instructed to do and mo even probably more importantly she was not giving the vitamins the baby was not getting vitamin d um, these, the biochemical parameters corrected quickly after um, institution of the fortified supplement and vitamin D. Unfortunately, the infant moved with his family uh, away from San Diego, so we do not have long-term follow-up on this baby. But to me, this infant was a wake-up call that, wow, we really do need to follow these babies very carefully. And this was several years before the SPIN program was developed at UCSD. So how do I uh, follow these infants in uh, the premature infant nutrition clinic and in my own practice? Um, I want to make a, a, a plea to those of you that do general pediatrics that we do growth checks, not just weight checks. I think in the past when a baby first comes in, they get their length and head circumference measured as well as their weight and then they get those same triple measurements done at the usual two, four and six uh, month visits when they receive vaccines uh, and we used to rely just on weights but there's more to following a baby than just the weight because the length uh, is important for a, Protein is important for length, and you may just be getting calories and having more adipose tissue, but we really want to know the overall growth of a baby. Uh, you need the appropriate growth chart. Again, most of these babies are discharged before their term, so we need the um, uh, appropriate chart. Uh, and then I now use the WHO chart when uh, we're past term. Uh, follow selected labs and careful follow-up. So I do want to just make a, a note about measuring. This may seem a little mundane. As I mentioned, we do all three measurements at each visit. Uh, doing links is very difficult. However, uh, I recently purchased an infotometer, which is a digitalized ruler board, if you will. Uh, and it's, uh, I think my links are a lot better with that. We have the parent hold the infant uh, head up against the top while we stretch the baby out and then the plastic uh, slide comes up against their feet held perpendicularly and you get an instant digital reading in centimeters and in inches. And that has greatly improved my ability, I think, to get uh, links. And doing an accurate head circumference is not always easy. I think careful training of your staff is important. And if uh, you get a value that seems like it doesn't quite fit with previous values, I urge you all to repeat the head circumference yourself. The Fenton growth curve, uh, I do not always get the curve from the NICU, even though there's attempts to do that. But I go back to the discharge summary and plot the birth parameters, I plot the discharge parameters, and again, most of them, even in our NICU, aren't quite back to where they were at birth, and then I go from there. And in fact, I show the parents, uh, particularly if things are going in the right directions, that, hey, we're going to catch up to where, uh, that Johnny's going to catch up to where he was at birth. And that's a, a very positive feedback for the parent to see that. And again, at term, I now use the WHO, even though this is the CDC growth chart. Uh, our goals for growth, for the first three months corrected, we would like to see six to seven ounces 
weight gain per week. Uh, about a centimeter per week, I can tell you since I've been doing these, most of these babies are more in the 7 to 9, 0.7 to 0.9 centimeters per week when I do the figures, and the head circumference 0.5 centimeters per week. Um, at the three to six months, uh, I believe we're actually putting that down to about four to six uh, ounces uh, per week we're satisfied with, so you can make that correction. Uh, 0.5 centimeters per week in the length and 0.2 centimeters per week in the head circumference. Supplementation. Uh, we've talked about this before. Bottles of expressed fortified breast milk is usually necessary. Uh, and they all need iron. Usually the 10 milligrams of iron in the poly or trivisol vitamins is enough for the first few months. The American Academy of Pediatrics generally recommends two milligrams per kilogram per day as a supplement. And if you do the math, this works out pretty well. But again, as my patient that I shared with you earlier, I am a very strong believer in vitamin D and want to make sure these parents are giving their babies vitamin D and I leave the vitamin E to the ophthalmologist. Fortification, babies under 1,800 grams or less than 34 weeks gestational age usually receive uh, fortification. Uh, since human milk uh, fortifier is not available after discharge, we usually add discharge, uh, post-discharge formula to human milk uh, to a density most often of 22 calories that we usually step down. Now if there are issues with growth, then we may step it back up as needed. And I work with the dietitians at the hospital uh, and have them help me uh, with the recipes. I, I, I want to be a part of a team in that respect. Uh, we do sometimes use fortified liquid supplements. We're finishing a study with one, uh, a 30 kilocalorie per ounce supplement. The idea in using this is that as we're transitioning the babies more to actually feeding at the breast, we're hoping that moms don't have to pump as much and that we could use this concentrated supplement uh, as a boost and make things easier. I'll, I'll touch on that again with my, some of my experience, although anecdotal, I think it's sometimes helpful to share and I I'm, will be anxious to hear your experiences as well. And now we usually, um, I think most babies that are growing well uh, need fortification for about three months post-discharge. It's mentioned that we're kind of backing off with that, from that long-term discharge. But of course, if a baby is having difficulty or has chronic lung disease and has greater caloric needs, they may well need fortification for longer periods of time. Uh, the biochemical markers that we follow, uh, we usually use a BUN as a marker for adequate protein status and try and uh, get a BUN of uh, greater than or equal to five. Our first set of labs are done four to six weeks after discharge. Alkaline phosphatase, we like to see less than 400, again, four to six weeks after discharge. The phos uh, phosphorus, greater than 4.5. Hemoglobin, we'd like to see 10. I usually get a reticulocyte count at the same time. Some of the babies haven't quite been able to muster a hemoglobin of 10, but if they're reticking, I know that they're going to get there. And a ferritin, we usually do at the three-month visit to, again, assess iron stores. Initially, I was worried that um, we might overload these babies in iron. Uh, and in fact, I've not seen any babies uh, close to I mean, most of my ferritins, I'm happy if they're 50. Uh, there was a poster yesterday I looked at that they did have uh, some infants with ferritins that were quite high, 
but I noticed most of those babies had uh, many blood transfusions, almost nine, and I think that accounted for the high iron load in those infants. In our practice, I've not seen anything like that. Uh, now, the pediatrician, I, it's one thing to look at nutrition, and it's very complicated, you know, can be complicated, but it's doable. It's something I think we all feel comfortable with. But we also get this bundle, this baby that's quite fragile, and a parent who now all of a sudden has the burden to take care of this baby at home, and the mother wants to, con most of them want to continue to produce breast milk and to get their baby to the breast. And so we may not be able to do it and probably can't do it all ourselves. Uh, we need to be a member of a team and hopefully a leader of a team and work with a lactation consultant and or an occupational therapist and or a dietitian. And I still call on my neonatology friends when I need help. Uh, and so I like to think I'm the leader of that team. But even as a leader, I need to know a little bit about what I'm doing. And I can tell you since I've started in the past 15 years, moving to California, learning to watch babies breastfeed, I have a greater appreciation for the problems getting babies onto the breast, particularly the preterm. And I've learned to think about, even when I'm watching, what is the baby's latch like? Do I hear an audible swallow? What does the mother's mouth or what does the mother's nipple look like and is this baby's mouth going to even fit over the mom's nipple uh, and does the mom even know how to hold the baby so I urge you while you're getting a history and if the baby needs to breastfeed watch them breastfeed and it you can learn a lot the other thing that is very helpful in the office are test weights and a test weight is done um, what we do when a baby comes in is we weigh the baby naked, then we put a dry diaper on, weigh the baby again, and if the mom is feeding, we tell her, do not change the diaper again, and then we weigh the baby again with a digital scale that's very accurate to within three to five grams, and the difference, the weight gain, is, equals the amount of milk that was transferred in MLs. And sometimes you can be fooled. In fact, it's amazing. Uh, this, you may think a baby is doing great and they've transferred almost nothing, or, and, and the opposite can be true. So the test weights can be very, very helpful. Again, I don't expect the general pediatrician to be doing a lot of this, but knowing about it and working with a lactation person, preferably in your office, can be very helpful. Uh, again, the breastfeeding support a little bit more, uh, most if not, most of these babies need nipple shields. They don't, aren't able to generate enough suction pressure and to stay latched onto the breast uh, without a shield. Not all of them do, but it helps. Uh, something I've learned in the last couple of years is just the simple act of breast compressions, whereas a baby is latched on and nursing and trying to suck, if you press up higher on the breast and have a back pressure, if you will, that helps the baby get more milk. My lactation consultant taught me that. There are a lot of times we have to tweak the pumping. Unfortunately, the moms are usually exhausted, and I oftentimes have to step down the pumping just because there aren't enough hours and minutes in a day, but that's very individualized. Again, we've talked about supplementation, skin to skin, and relaxation. I always say with a grain of salt, but in fact, we do need to try and make sure these moms get a little time for themselves. And I, again, I want to mention it's important to be a member of the team. Uh, hopefully, you can lead this team. Insufficient milk is a big problem. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but you have to review pumping, breastfeeding, optimizing breastfeeding, 
reviewing mother's history. Oftentimes these moms get started on birth control uh, about six weeks and we really don't want an estrogen containing birth control pill. Uh, so that's something to look at. Um, and the infant's anatomy. Uh, we're do realizing more and more that babies that are tongue-tied or have ankyloglossia may not be able to extract breast milk as well. And certainly if you've got a preemie that is otherwise somewhat compromised, clipping that tongue may then allow them to remove milk from the breast. I mentioned relaxation. When everything else has not worked and moms need to produce more milk, I do sometimes use galactagogues to augment breast milk supply. We usually go to herbals first, and I will tell you there is not good scientific literature uh, to support the use of herbals, but there are about 2,000 years worth of evidence that moms have used it, so I do think some of them do work for some moms. Fenugreek is the one I use the most. My lactation consultant likes uh, some of the mother's milk tea and a tincture of uh, a combination of herbals. When that doesn't work, there are some pharmaceuticals that can be used off-label. The one that's most commonly used is metoclopramide. Again, the mom needs to know that they're off-label. You need to know the mom's history and warn her of the potential side effects of that particular pharmaceutical. Again, it goes without saying, we do need to, at the end, just kind of check in with the moms, even as a pediatrician. How are you doing? How are you coping? Uh, interestingly, some mo most moms do not like pumping, but some moms can't let go of the NICU mentality. I gotta know how many MLs this baby is getting. I gotta pump. So again, I work with moms and, and do, you know, we'll, we'll maybe say, okay, let's go ahead and pump. Multiples are a whole nother world in and of themselves. I think it's important to know what moms want from the outset and ask her what are her goals and when is she going back to work. Most of the mo these moms are going back to work and to tailor the feeding plans according to what they want. Just a few of my anecdotal experiences. Um, be careful, as some of these moms I found, oh yes, they've got tons of milk, they're pumping, they're giving moms milk. I found out that they were giving all frozen milk and they were freezing the fresh because they were afraid that milk that they pumped six weeks ago is going to go bad and they don't want to not use it. Well, we really like them to use mostly fresh milk and so I asked them to use three quarters to two thirds fresh or one quarter to one third frozen. Sometimes the milk uh, develops a sour taste uh, due to the action of lipase on the milk if it's stored for very long. And if that's the case with this mother's milk, we ask them to scald the milk they're currently freezing before they freeze it, and that will usually help. And just a word about uh, what we're learning about liquid fortifiers. Um, some babies tolerate it and some don't, and that's another story, but some moms really don't like to use liquid fortifiers if they're producing enough milk because they think that the two to four ounces of fortifier that a baby may need, and I think they have a point, is displacing a fairly substantial quantity of, of their own milk that they could be using. They would much rather put a powder into their own milk and boost it to give to the babies. Um, again, just something I've learned along the uh, way. So when all is said and done and after I see a baby and I'm writing my note, the four areas that I want to go over is first and foremost is the infant's nutrition. Is that infant getting the nutrition they should need? Again, I need to think about is the baby able to remove breast milk from the breast if that's what mom wants to do and is that feasible and is she getting the support she needs? 
I still need to think about breast milk production because there's no way a baby can breastfeed if there isn't enough breast milk there. And we do think that's the best nutrition. And then just touch on the mother's ability to cope. In summary, uh, at discharge from the NICU, they're usually still preterm. They're usually only receiving, when I, re when I go over the discharge summary, they've only been feeding by mouth for two or three weeks. Uh, they're, again, not able to effectively remove uh, milk from the breast. They're usually not back to their birth weight. All were ill, even those that have a smooth NICU course. You can tell from looking at their acute phase reactants, they've been struggling to keep up in the NICU. Some come home with chronic illnesses, as you well know. Human milk offers real advantages over preterm discharge formula, uh, but it may not be adequate as a sole source of nutrition. They need extra calories, minerals, protein, and vitamin D. And I think we need to be prepared uh, to meet the challenge of helping the mom help the baby learning to breastfeed if that's what she wants, and help mom with the challenges of her pumping and just coping with the situation at hand. And in order to do that, we need really careful follow-up. And this is where I probably depart from what many pediatricians do, but we think that these babies need to be followed weekly for at least the first month, and then I follow them um, once a month uh, until they're six months, and then probably once uh, every two months after that until they're a year. Now, obviously, if things are going really well, you can tell parents that, oh, things are going so well, we can skip a visit and I can see you in two weeks. And that makes everyone feel happy. Uh, and of course, we don't want to forget the other services, the pulmonologist and all. And well, what should our goal be? I know there's some controversy, but I like that our goal should be to achieve the body composition and rate of growth of that of the normal fetus at the same time of postmenstrual age during the entire first year of life. Now this may not always be achievable because of other factors, but still I think we should have a goal um, of, the, of that for most babies. Thank you. You have been listening to a Prova Education live event presented on ReachMD's series Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.